Father, thanks so much for a gorgeous day out and for bringing us out here safely to your house. Open our hearts now as we study your word. Give us insight, understanding, and thank you so much for this day. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Last week we uh, talked about this whole... uh, really trying to wrap up this whole concept of spiritual armor and talking about how we actually go about fighting Satan. We've learned a lot about how you don't fight Satan. And uh, last week we talked about how you do. And uh, in the Bible it tells us basically we are to stand firm. We are to be alert, resist the devil. Pray for deliverance from the evil one. This is an important one. Um, the Bible calls us to pray for God's protection. We are to pray for that. Um, not only for ourselves, but for our families. Um, you know, if you're a parent, it's uh, appropriate. In fact, it's, it's healthy for you to pray that God would protect your children from satanic um, activity, that he would get, deliver them from the evil one. Job did that, didn't he? What did Job do every day? Yeah, for himself and for his children. I mean, this is somebody who interceded for his children every day. So... It's appropriate for us to pray that God would deliver us from the evil one, that God would prevent us from falling into temptation, that, uh, you know, deliver us from temptation, deliver us from the evil one. We are to pray for that. Um, That's something that all of us can do. And I think that uh, we'll be surprised, I think, when we get to heaven to find out just how much God has protected us in spite of ourselves. How many times he told Satan no when he could have said yes. And... um, that's something maybe to thank God for when you pray. You know, I've, this last week, you know, I just remember one day just thanking God for all the things that didn't happen that could have had Satan got his way. And um, I don't know what those things are. If I did, I would probably not sleep at night. Um, so it's a good thing I don't know. It's a good thing we don't know. But God does deliver us. We're also talking about the whole concept of binding Satan and the idea that uh, this is really not a biblical concept, concept rather... It is something that is made up. The only time Satan is bound in Scripture is when he is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And Christ is using the illustration of binding the strong man in Matthew 12 not not to show that we are to bind Satan, but just as an illustration that Christ is spoiling Satan's kingdoms. Christ is doing severe damage to Satan's enterprise. And the only way Christ could possibly do that is he'd have to be stronger than Satan. He's not Satan, rather he is stronger than Satan. Just as if I'm going to rob a house, I've got to be able to tie up the man who is there so it means I'm stronger than him. Christ is saying I'm stronger than Satan. We also talk about hedges. And the idea there of hedges is, uh, the, the concept is that some people say, well, we can pray hedges. We can put up like shields around us. Um, again, that's not biblical. God puts up a shield around us, doesn't he? He's our shield. But God's the one who puts that shield up. Um, we can pray for God's protection, but we can't go around and push a button and raise the shield, so to speak. Um, there's nothing like that. In fact, the only time hedges is really talked about is in the book of Job. And in there, Job didn't know that the hedge was there until after the fact. The only one who really knew the hedge was there was God and Satan, right? Satan said, I, I would do something, but you put a hedge around him. And it's not that Job put the hedge around him, it's that God put the hedge around him. God protects us. And it's okay, again, for us to pray for God's protection. Um, One more thing on here on binding Satan. We did talk about the passage in Matthew 16 
about Peter, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Um, I mentioned uh, one of the um, possible interpretations of that passage, and that is that Christ was not talking about Peter being the foundation, rather Peter's confession being the foundation. And there's a lot of um, evidence for that. Another possible explanation is I did more research. I actually go and do research after the class to make sure that I don't follow something up in here. And uh, another possibility, and it's just almost as equally valid, is that Christ is not talking to Peter as the foundation, but to all the apostles as the foundation. Because what do we know about the foundation of the church as mentioned in Ephesians, book of Ephesians? Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone. Um, and one of the things here to understand, um, we're, we're, we didn't talk really about hermeneutics or the art of biblical interpretation here, but one of the things is that God wants to be clear in Scripture. He wants it to be clear. He wants you to understand it. And he's not going to couch something in cryptic or odd terms, hoping that somehow you'll stumble over the real meaning of Scripture. He's very clear. And had Christ wanted to make the statement that Peter himself was the foundation of the church, how would he have said it? Peter, you are the foundation. He did not say that. He did not say, Peter, you personally are the foundation. He could have said that and that would have solved all the discussion, right? We wouldn't be talking about it now. He didn't say that. Rather, he said that, and quite possibly he could have said this. He could, it was like, I'm talking to Sammy, and I said, well, you didn't get that from yourself. You got it from the Holy Spirit, and you're a rock, but upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. See what I did? I didn't say her. I said, this rock. Who's he talking to? The apostles. And all of them were the foundation of the church. They were the, the foundation layer, and that's seen in Ephesians and seen in Peter as well. Um, how Christ, Peter himself even said that the apostles are the foundation. So he, Peter didn't have it all balled up. Peter knew exactly what Christ was saying. I was looking at that for the week, and Peter talks about that, and First Peter chapter 2, he talks about us being a living stone, mm-hmm. where Christ was the cornerstone and we're the living stone. Build on that. Yeah. And what was the first course of the living stones that was laid down. The apostles, right? They are the foundational stone. Peter did not say, I'm the chief cornerstone. Who's the chief cornerstone? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Um, So those who want to somehow make Peter the head of the church, and Catholicism certainly wants to do that, um, to make him the first sort of pope, first leader of the church, um, you've got to stretch it. You've got to stretch what the passage is saying. And you've got to read into it something that's not there. And if Christ wanted, if God wanted to make Peter the head of the church, he could have done that. He didn't. And by the way, if you just look at church history, was Peter the head of the church? No. Who was the head of the church in Jerusalem? James, the brother, or the half-brother of Christ. It was not Peter. It was not John. It was James. All right? So... Right. He, he preached the first <coughs> excuse me, sermon. Um, he was not the foundation. The apostles were the foundation. And the idea of having the keys of the kingdom, what does that mean? Well, again, what does a key signify in Scripture in those days? If you had the keys, what did you have? 
the authority and the, not knowledge, but access. If I have the keys to the church, that means I can get in the church, right? I can open the locked doors and I can get in. What does it mean when, it, when Christ told the disciples, the apostles there, that they had the keys of the kingdom of heaven? They had a way to get in. They had the, and what was the way to get in? How do you get into the kingdom? Jesus Christ. They are the ones that had the keys of the kingdom. You know, we have the keys of the kingdom in a sense, right? When we preach the gospel, when we witness to people, that is the key to the kingdom of God. That's how you get in. You don't get in any other way. You've got to go in the right door, who is Christ. That's another metaphor. Christ is the door. And to open the door, you have to have the key. And what is the key? The key is the knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. And those disciples had those keys. They had the keys of the kingdom and they could open and shut. How do you shut the door? You just don't tell somebody about Christ being the way, right? That's how you close the door. How do you open the door? You tell people how to get in. You tell them about Christ. And that's the metaphor that everybody in those days would have understood. Because a key was symbolized, symbolized access and authority. If you had the key to the kingdom, you had access and authority to everything in the kingdom. And that's the metaphor that Christ uses. So, any questions on that? Alright. Alright. Let's talk about our spiritual armor. One of the great metaphors in the scripture that Paul uses, and, and um, I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the analogy of armor, spiritual armor. Now, to understand spiritual armor, you've got to transport yourself back in time 2,000 years. And uh, think about what it was like to be a soldier in the days of the Roman Empire. Um, when you were in that empire and you fought as a soldier in a war, you did not have what we have today like, you know, a, a machine gun or a helmet, you know, just a, like a helmet or something like that. You had a whole set of armor that was there to protect you. And why is that? Well, because most of your fighting, most of the battles was done up close and personal, right? You didn't uh, have people shooting at you from 100 yards or 1,000 yards away. Um, you had fights right up per close and personal. And that is what the armor was used for. The armor was used to protect you from that up close and personal fight. And we're going to talk about how it was to be a soldier. This would have made a lot of sense to first century believers. Why? Because they watched Roman soldiers trot by on the road every day. They understood that. They understood what a helmet was. They understood what a breastplate was and what it was used for. They understood the sword and the, and the shield. They understood those things. They watched those things. Um, we need to do a little bit of uh, homework to understand about the armor. But they knew it. And when you look at our armor in the Bible, when you look at the spiritual armor that we have in Ephesians 6, which, by the way, you can turn there now because that's what we're going to be really looking at, Ephesians 6. When you look at our spiritual armor, there's basically two pieces of it there's a there's a set of defensive armor what's the idea of the defensive it's there to protect you it's protection all right and there's and in fact most all of the armor that Paul talks about is defensive in nature there's only one offensive weapon and that would be the machaira the sword of the spirit and what is the machaira the machaira is the short dagger it's not the long Ramphaya broadsword. It's a short little dagger, maybe 12 to 18 inches of that much in length. And it was used in close personal hand-to-hand -hand combat where you would take the dagger 
and you would find an opening in the person's armor that you were fighting and thrust the sword in there to deliver a mortal blow. It was not something you just wailed around and swung around your head. It was a very precise instrument. That is our offensive weapon. But our spiritual armor consists of several pieces. The first piece Paul talks about is the belt of truth. Let's look in um, Ephesians chapter 6. And while I change my glasses, you can all get there. I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to do this. Glasses swap all of the time. I told the doctor he was killing me. He said, what do you want me to do? Because they won't do anything until after six months. I said, you're going to have to suffer for six months and then we'll clean you up. So That's going to be in June. All right. In Ephesians 6, um, Paul uses the whole armor of God in verse 10. He says, Finally, therefore, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the what schemes of the devil. Why is it that you, you have the whole armor of God? Why is it that God gave you the spiritual armor so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil? Now, what implied in standing against the schemes of the devil, what does that imply? That when you uh, notice a subtle negativity, let's say, that, you know, that more likely he's, he's in it. And, Possibly. And by learning uh, the word, we can learn to be careful that. Yeah, that's certainly included. Yeah. Go up to 20,000 feet. What does it mean to stand firm? Uh, you better be on a space shuttle or even drift. <laughs> yeah. Stand firm. Yeah, having a little air. Never drifting. Never drifting. Um, it's in, here, here's, the, here's the thing. When, when the, the whole point here... It, you know, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but but the, sometimes scripture is so easy to understand you miss it, right? The idea of standing firm is it's not saying you go out and find the devil. Rather, what happens? The devil finds you. All right. So what are you to do? Be prepared and stand firm. In other words, it's not saying go find a demon, right? It's not saying go seek out Satan. Go try to find out what Satan is up to in your community and, 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 and t- attack him. It's saying you are to stand firm. The battle comes to us, folks. We don't need to go to the battle. The battle comes to us. right? And what we need to do is when the battle comes to us, we need to be prepared so that when Satan attacks, we can stand and not give ground. That's the whole point there. Do you understand the difference here? And why is it that we can't go and find the demons? Well, we don't know what the demons are up to and what they aren't necessarily, right? We don't know that. But we don't have to worry about that because the demons are going to come to us, <laughs> in a sense. Satan is going to come to us. So, as, as a Christian, you don't need to go out looking for a fight. The fight will come to you. He's seeking whom he may devour. He's going to come to you. All right. So the idea here is to be able to stand and defend yourself and where you're at. You're able to defend the truth of the Word of God. You're able to defend 
you know, the doctrine of Christ, things like that. You're able to stand firm, and you're able to stand firm against his temptations to you. Because one of the things that Satan wants to do is destroy us, right? Because this is the only way he can do it now. He's not going to get to you when you're in heaven, right? The only way he can mess you up is now. And he does a fairly good job of that, <laughs> you have to admit. So what is it that uh, Paul uses when he talks about this, this fight here? Well, he says you need to stand having, he says here, for we, by the way, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What's our real battle? Our real battle is not on the human level. Where's the real battle? For us? It's a spiritual battle. How do you win spiritual battles? You put on the armor and you win them spiritual ways. You don't win them our way. Now let me take just a short little detour here. You know, As Christians, we live in America. And in America, we have certain things that we can do as citizens of our country, right? But how do you win? First of all, are, you, are we going to win the culture war? No, we're not going to win the culture war. It ain't going to happen, right? Why isn't it going to happen? Well, the Bible says things are going to get better and better, worse and worse. All right? So you're not going to win the culture war. But unfortunately, what do a lot of Christians do? They fight the culture war. They're going after the culture war. And how do they fight the culture war, usually? Using our means, right? And what is our means? Well, we protest. We boycott. We... Yeah, we have uh, marches on things. and Is that going to win? No. Oh, no. No, it's not. How does the world fight their battles? They fight it that way, don't they? They march. They protest. They do those things. We're not going to win it that way. How do you win? First of all, we're not going to ultimately win tempor- temporarily on this thing. Christ is going to have to do it for us when he comes again, right? He'll, he'll win the culture war. And so we're, in, in essence, sort of fighting a losing battle. But that doesn't mean you give up. What do you do? You fight spiritual battles in spiritual ways. Who's behind the spiritual dar- or the, the darkness in our country and in our world? It's not human beings. It's Satan who's behind that. And you've got to fight Satan not by your own means, not by your own machinations, not by protests and political maneuvering and things like that. You've got to fight Satan on God's, using God's way, using the way that God has given us. And the way God has given us is we are to stand firm having our spiritual armor on and we are to pray. That's, our, that's the way we fight this thing. There's nothing secret about it. This is not secret. And what happens to a lot of Christians is we get so busy, caught up in protests and boycotts and everything else, that we don't pray. And that we don't fight the battles God's way, we fight them our way. And what's going to happen if we fight in our own strength and our own power? You lose. All right. Now we can spend a lot of time talking about that. I want you to. I like. I encourage you to think about that. How are we as Christians to fight spiritual battles? Or fight it. Fight spiritual battles God's way, not our way. Same way Jesus did. Did Jesus organize protests and march against Rome? No. Now Rome was bad. You understand that. Rome was really bad in those days. And yet Christ did not organize a political movement. He did not try to get Christian senators elected to the Roman Senate. 
By the way, that does not mean you're not supposed to vote for the people that you think should be in our government. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that we're not going to ultimately win that way. It's not going to happen. We need to fight spiritual battles using our spiritual armor, using spiritual resources, which God has given us, which is the Word of God, prayer, and our spiritual armor. That's how you fight. And if you fight in your own strength, it's, it's, you're on your own. As far as God is concerned, you're on your own. By the way, Peter tried to do that, didn't he? Yeah. Peter said, ah, everybody will leave you, but I'll be there. I, I won't abandon you. Not me. And how, was Christ, how did Christ respond to that? Yeah, you got about nine hours. You're going to deny me three times. Why? Because Peter decided he was going to do it in his power, his strength. And he fell flat on his face. And that's the thing to understand. Satan is too big and powerful for us to beat him on his terms. It isn't going to happen. You've got to fight the way God has given us to fight. And our battle, our ultimate battle, is not against flesh and blood. It's not the people that we are fighting. You understand that. See, what happens to a lot of Christians is we get our focus off of where the real battle is and we get it on to people and groups, right? Does that include your children too? I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, you've got to fight with well, unless your children have devil behind them, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, we fight against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ultimately, all evil can be traced back to that. That does not eliminate the responsibility of the individuals or in there. But we have to fight it using God's word, God's way. We can't fight it our own way. And one of the difficulties that Christians do is, is sometimes the mission field becomes the enemy. The world is our mission field, is it not, folks? And people who are in sin and evil, they're not to become our enemies. They're the mission field. They're the people we need to reach. Um, and that's why it distresses me when Christians get so worked up, for example, the gay rights agenda where we want to fight the gay rights people and want to look, folks, they're, they're in darkness, they're in bondage, they're in sin. What are they supposed to do? They're the mission field. We need to not make them our enemy. That doesn't mean that you, you go along with sin, right? But it means that they're not our enemy. What would happen if Christ had come and acted towards us the way we act towards many people? He would have just said, bag y'all. I mean, good night, you're all sinners. I'm just, I'm out of here. He didn't do that. Instead, he saw us as a mission field. The world is our mission field. They're not to be our enemies. And when you, st get start, you get into this mode of we've we got to fight the culture war and got to win the culture war, you make people enemies who are really the mission field. And we've got to be careful of that. Am I making any sense at all in this whole thing? The only people group that Jesus got upset with and, and, and messed, you know, just totally bit out of shape over were the religious people. Yeah, they were the ones that didn't need help. He was, he was hanging out with the riffraff. Yep. And I'm glad, because I'm one of those riffraff. We all are riffraff in here. You understand that? And I'm glad that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. The world is lost. They're not our enemies. You understand that? Obama is not our enemy, folks. He's to be prayed for. Now, I don't like what he does half the time, but that's... Look, he's, he's not the enemy. 
And we can't make him our enemy. If as Christians we make him our enemy, we're, we're, we're um, getting the, 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 the reason we're here all fouled up and confusing the world as to what we're really all about. Terry, you're going to say something. It's basic personally it is to defend in a first Corinthians five or second Corinthians five, which we probably won't get to, it talks about casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's it's on the level of ideas. We are to preach the truth. Now, are people going to accept the truth? No, unless the Holy Spirit opens their hearts, they're not going to do that. But the the battle is against truth. The battle is not against people personally. Right. Right. And the offensive weapon is the Word of God that we use in a specific situation. All right? And, and I, I get, really, I get distressed when Christians become the enemies of the world by their tactics. We're the enemy of the world by our existence because we are believers, right? If the world hates me, they're going to hate you. Let's make sure the world hates us for the right reasons. <laughs> Unfortunately, we give them a lot of other reasons to hate us than the right reasons to hate us. And when you have a website, GodHatesFags.org, run by a so-called Christian church, that's not a very good way to fight this battle. You're, 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 you're basically falling into Satan's trap and making Christ look bad. Um, that does not mean that we are for that lifestyle. But look... Christ could have done that and the gospel message would have been lost, couldn't it? Couldn't have, right? He could have come and he could have made his whole ministry to overthrow the Roman Empire or whatever and he didn't do that. That's not what he was here for. And we need to be careful. We, just, we need to really be careful as a church to fight the right battle. Because remember, one of Satan's tactics is to get us fighting the wrong thing. To get us expending our energy in the wrong area and not really fighting where we should be fighting. All right? So that's enough of a detour on that. It's just important that we understand that you, to, to fight the spiritual battle, you need to fight it with our spiritual armor, with God's spiritual weapons. And Paul even said that in, in 2 Corinthians 5, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. What does it mean they're not carnal? They're not physical kinds of things that we are used to fighting. They're not political things. They're not, they're not of the flesh. What are they? They are of the Spirit. They are at the realm of ideas, prayer, asking God to intervene. When's the last time the church as a whole got together and just prayed for the situation in the world? We don't do that anymore. And some of the magazines, and not magazines, but papers I read and the trade rags and that, I get that idea that most Christians are just wanting God to come down here and just wipe all the unbelievers out. It's like, man, what kind of love of God is that? Do you want God to return right now? I sort of yes and no, right? Yes, because I'd like to be out of here, but no, because there's a lot of people I know that aren't ready. So there's always that that ambivalence there. Yeah. Bible doesn't. They'll, they'll stay alive. They'll be alive through the millennium at least. So your dog will be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Three dogs and I... Well, I got one dog and two cats, and that's too many, but... Yeah. Yeah. Lay down with the lamb. So let's look at our spiritual armor. Or we're going to have to go another week. We don't want to do that. Um, Therefore, take up, verse 13, the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand. What's the idea of standing? Not giving ground, right? It doesn't say that you may advance. It's that you may stand. Stand firm. All right? And they may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Again, the whole concept in here, stand, stand firm, stand in the evil day, to not give ground, to not give in, to not become a victim, a casualty of the spiritual war. God has given us this armor to keep us safe. All right? And the first thing he gives us is this belt of truth here. Stand there for having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, what is the belt of truth? Well, if you go back and you look at the way the Roman soldier um, was dressed, they had a belt. And what, did, what was on that belt? Well, that belt was the thing that held together, or held their sword, their whatever, their weapons on it. And it also held up their tunic. Because the Roman soldier would have a tunic. In those days, they didn't have pants like we have and things like that. Men wore skirts, all right, or a, a robe kind of thing. And before they would go into battle, they would gather the material of that robe up and wrap it under their belt so that it would not flop down and they were mobile, they could move. The idea here is the belt held everything up. If you take the belt off, everything falls to the ground, all right? The belt of truth that Paul speaks here, most Bible scholars say it could mean a couple of things. One, it could mean the underst- it may be understood as truth and the opposition to falsehood. In other words, the truth of the Word of God. What is it that holds us spiritually together? The truth of the Word of God. Remember we said, how many truths are there? One. There's a lot of error, but there's one truth. And when you fight, and we go into battle and you fight spiritual warfare, you, you're, you're in a spiritual battle, we need the truth of the Word of God to sustain us in that battle. We need to go back to the Word of God, not to what some other people think or somebody says. We need to go to the truth of the Word of God. That's what's going to hold us together. That holds all of the pieces together. That holds the tunic up that keeps us from stumbling and slipping and sliding and getting all tangled up and and tripping. Um, It can help you stand on your feet, right? Because a lot of times in spiritual battles, we trip because we don't know the truth. We need to know the truth. And that belt that, that held up the Roman soldier's tunic and held... His weapons is what holds us together spiritually. It can also mean an attitude of truthfulness or sincerity. I think it probably means the former more than the latter. And that's why you know, we need to be people of the Word, right? We need to know the truth of the Word of God. We need to know what God tells us. We need to be people that are, are steeped in that. So that when spiritual battles come our way, we have spiritual insight to understand what it is we should or shouldn't be doing. And God has given us His truth, right? And where are you going to... By the way, where are you going to find truth? In the inspired Word of God. You're not going to find it anywhere else. Now, now, now think about that. Because a lot of times what happens is you've got people that come along and say, yeah, but you know, God gave me this insight and they pop something on you. 
And you ask them, where did you get that? Well, you know, God gave it to me in a dream or a vision or something like that. You won't find what they're saying in the Word of God. You won't find it in the Scripture. Is that truth? Probably not. Where are you going to find the truth? You're going to find it in the Word of God. You're not going to find it in revelations from other people. We talked about that a little bit in Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God, God, put it this way, God has given us an instruction manual for fighting spiritual battles, and it's this book. Now, if God gave you this book to fight spiritual battles, what did He make sure was in it? Everything you needed. He didn't leave something out. God didn't say, you know, I forgot all about this whole psychological stuff, and I never did put that in there. We'll bring Freud along. He can figure it out for us. No, you don't, don't go there. Don't go there. I'm a purist when it comes to that. If God gave us a book, God made sure that everything we needed to know was in it. First Peter says that, right? He gave us all, or Second Peter, he gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. He didn't leave something out. He didn't forget to tell us some things that we need to figure out now on our own. He's given us everything we need to know. So we can go here and make sure if it's not in here, it's not something we need to know, right? It's in here. He's given us His Word. And we can stand, and when I face spiritual battles, I can stand firm because I know that God has given me all the truth I need to know to stand there. He's not leaving some major piece missing that I've got to sort, of sort out on my own or come up with on my own. I've got it all. Yeah. Truth bears witness with the truth. So it's not that if a person has a particular dream or vision, it's not automatically out of hand to be discounted. Otherwise, the dreams that are in Scripture would have to all be discounted from, from Joseph to Daniel to Lord knows who all. So if it bears witness with the truth, then fine. It's just that if the, the revelatory information that you get through whatever avenue you get it is not aligned with the written word, then toss it out. Yeah. You know, it's not that God can't give us impressions or, or you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's not that He can't do that. He can but the, the authority, the ultimate authority in all truth is not our impressions. It's no, the Word of God. That's, true. that's what we're trying to get at here. It's not somebody's vision. It's the Word of God. Because mm -hmm. that's where God has given us His information. Alright? And that's where we need to go back to. It's, it's the truth of Scripture. And unfortunately, we do everything but go there sometimes. What is the content of truth? Well, the, our fight against Satan must be based on the truthfulness of the Word of God. And why is that? Well, Satan is the father of lies. And it's interesting, you know, can God tell a lie? Can Satan tell the truth? All right. That solves it right there. So, if Satan is giving you some information, it's not the truth. Whatever it may sound like, it is not the truth. Yeah, it may, it may be a piece of it, right? But it isn't the whole thing. And therefore, we need to avoid going to Satan for any information at any level. 
God is the author of truth. God cannot give you a lie. He cannot lead you astray. He cannot deceive you. God cannot do that. And, God, and by the way, you understand, God doesn't do that. God has given us a word that is clear. God is not hiding truth in the Scripture, hoping that we'll stumble over it and accidentally find it and playing some celestial game of hide-and-seek trying to keep His knowledge from us. And he, he doesn't play it that way. God wants you to know the truth. And God will reveal that clearly in the Scripture. So whenever we fight Satan, we go back to the Word of God, we go back to the truth of the Word of God, and understand that Satan by nature is a deceiver. And Satan will deceive us with the Word of God, won't he? When he say Christ? Hey, you know, your, your Old Testament says uh, God will bear you up. I mean, cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. I mean, he quoted Scripture. And unfortunately, Satan knows Scripture better than all of us do. And he knows how to twist it and make it into something it is not. So we need to go back to the Word of God, be people of the truth, and people who actively seek the role of the Holy Spirit and help us understand truth, right? How many times have you prayed that God would give you understanding in His truth? Hopefully every day. That God would open His Word to you and help you understand really what it says and give you, give you insight. The attitude of truth is honesty and commitment of readiness to fight. A lot of Christians don't fight well, do they? They run, they hide, or they just give up. Yeah, they just flail around. You, you need to be vigilant. You need to be on the guard. You need to watch out for what Satan, you know, when Satan comes. And that's a lot in temptation. You know, personally, in our own personal lives, we need to be very aware of those things that tempt us, right? And all of us in here are tempted with different things. So when we're tempted with different things, what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we avoid those areas, right? Turn off the television if you need to. Don't go to the malls. Don't pick up the telephone and gossip. That's part of spiritual warfare, just avoiding those situations that we have weaknesses in. It's nothing more godly than knowing where you need to, not, need to stay away from. Another piece of armor is our breastplate of righteousness. We're to stand having our loins girded about with the belt of truth and having on having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, notice what it says here, having and having. The idea of having and having means what? Grammatically. I already have it on. So this is not something I put on. This is something I always have on. Okay? It's not that I'm standing there naked and then I pick up all of this stuff and curry and get myself ready. It's that I'm standing there having on the belt of truth, having on the breastplate. It's not something I take off and put on and take off and put on. I'm always to have it on. And this is one of the most important pieces of this Roman's soldier's armor. Um, it was a breastplate. And, and the end of a breastplate is that which goes around the, the upper chest area and the stomach area. It's a, it's a, and it could be um, heavy linen. It could be sometimes they had heavy linen overlaid with pieces of metal. Um, or animal hooves. That was another one, you know, like um, the hooves of, uh, of uh, horses or something like that, something hard, so that if you, you poke at it, you're, you're deflected. All right? Sometimes they're made of a solid piece of metal. And we see that in a lot of our movies. You see the old Roman soldiers, the breastplate with the metal on them. Um, and the whole idea there 
is that it had to cover your heart and your your bowels because if you got stuck there, you were pretty much done for in those days. You get stabbed anywhere in the chest or the stomach area, you were done for. You were basically dead. It was just a matter of time. They didn't have the medical knowledge that we had today. So you had to protect those vital regions, those vital areas. And that's what the breastplate did. It protected you there. And when we look at Paul's understanding here, it probably a twofold meaning. Number one, what does Satan try to do to stick us with? What does he try to do to, to deliver a blow? He, it, it's usually doubt, is it not? Hath God really said that? The accusation of Satan. Um, and what we have as believers, we have what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're going to sort this all out in the doctrine of salvation. But basically what it means is that when you became a believer, God took all of your sin and imputed it to Christ. What does that mean? He reckoned it to Christ's account. He took all of Christ's righteousness and imputed that to you. So as far as you're standing for God, how do you stand before God? As righteous as Christ is. Go figure that one out. You're standing for God as you are as righteous as Christ is. And, and that's in God's judicial view of you. Now, practically, we all sin, right? And we need to confess our sin. And so we're not talking about the practical area here. But as far as, God, as far as the eternal things go, as far as the eternal consequence of your sin, you are as righteous as Christ is right now. We have that imputed righteousness of Christ. And without that righteousness, we can't stand and do anything, is can we? Because what protects us, what protects us from the onslaughts of Satan is that we are God's children. We are his, part of his family. Also, there's another concept here, and that is our practical righteousness. When Satan comes along and attacks you as being unrighteous, or he, he tries to get you to doubt your salvation, and we're going to talk about doubting the salvation later on, but doubt your standing and doubt that you're really protected and doubt that God is really protecting you, and you're living a life of just blatant sin, how, how does that go? How do you feel? You don't feel very saved, do you? When you're living in sin, do you feel saved? No, you don't. And Satan can have at us. He can cause us all kinds of trouble. We need to stand having on a breastplate of righteousness. Now, ultimately, where does that righteousness come from? Well, it comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ. But then what does God's, righteous, what does God's uh, Spirit enables us to do? What does it enable us to do? To be righteous to a degree, right? To stand in purity, in holiness. And if you're a Christian and you're living in sin, you've let your guard down. Right? And when Satan attacks, you're pretty well defenseless because you're living in sin. You don't have that, that, that assurance of the righteousness of God, the protection. And, and in a sense, we see this again in Scripture, those who fall into grievous sin, what may God do to them? He may remove his protection. And what happens to them? They're delivered to Satan. We talk about couple of guys that were delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Folks, being a godly person is not an optional part of the Christian life. 
It's not something you say, well, you know, someday I'm going to be perfect, so I'm not going to worry about it too much down here. It's a very important thing to be a godly person because that gives you protection when Satan comes after you and when we face spiritual battles, there's a protection of God's presence and, and we feel God's presence there and it protects us from the doubts and the, the blows that Satan, reigns, or Satan gives us. And if we don't have our own righteousness, we are battered around because we, just, we lose our will to fight. It's up to us as to whether we put ourselves out there in the danger zone or stay in the safety zone. Right. Thus, the breastplate of righteousness bears out the statement that we, have, we are saved or we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Right. You need to stand with the righteousness of, of God. And that righteousness of God is evidenced by an own, your own righteousness. And when you fall into sin and when you live a life of sin, an unrepentant sin, you expose yourself, you open yourself up to Satan's attacks. Alright? Another thing here, having on the shoes of the gospel of peace, the preparation of the shoes of the gospel of peace. And anybody who's been in the military will attest that one of the most important things that you have is your shoes or your boots. Alright, if you get a hole in your boots, you're done for. If you get your feet um, get injured or something like that, your ability to fight drops dramatically because you're not able to move. One of the most important pieces of armor in the Roman times was a shoe. Was the shoes, was the thick-soled sandals that they wore. Thick soles, and sometimes they had little nails in them to help them stand and get their, you know, like sort of like golf spikes or spikes when you're playing um, football or something like that, where you can dig into the ground to to keep your balance, um, and allowed them to stand and not be slip, not fall down, not slip on uneven ground or in muddy ground. They can stand firm. And uh, if you look at the translation, feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Um, a better understanding is stand firm, having your feet made ready by being shod with the gospel of peace. Already having it. Already having, remember? It's not that you put it on, it's that you already have it on. Alright? This is not something you put on, it's something you have on. Um, now some say, well, what he's talking about is the preaching of the gospel. But that doesn't make any sense, because we're not talking here about preaching, we're talking about standing firm in spiritual warfare. So here's the question, what relationship does spiritual does the gospel have in our spiritual battle against Satan? What is the gospel? When we talk about gospel, what are we talking about? The whole Bible. Well, not the whole Bible. In this context, it would be what? Good news about salvation, right? And in context, you can make the argument it's your personal salvation. Alright? So here's the question. What enables you to fight and stand firm and not slip in your spiritual battle? Well, putting on the armor, but confidence in the gospel, right? What makes us uh, what makes us able to endure, in essence, long marches? We're only going to what? When? It's not that we're going to lose, folks. So, what does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that ultimately we win. 
We may be battered around down here, but ultimately we win. And one of the things that enables us to fight the spiritual battle day after day, because after a while it gets tiring, doesn't it? Doesn't it get tiring? You know, you think you've won it, and then all of a sudden it's something else. And if it's not one thing, it's another. And, And as Christians, we have a lifetime of one spiritual battle after another. And sometimes it just say, you know, I'm just so tired of this. I'd like to, to give up. But what enables you to go on? Because you realize that someday you win. Someday it's over. Someday God does win. And sometimes that enables you to face the dark night of the soul when you're fighting a spiritual battle and you feel like God is gone and He's not there and what's going on. And, and then you have to stop and think, well, you know, someday it'll be worth it all when I see Jesus. You know, someday it'll... And that's hard to do, isn't it? It's awful hard to do. You look at David in, in the Psalms, oftentimes David starts out a psalm and the guy's depressed and he's in the, down in the dumps. And, you know, if you visit a psychologist, they want to give him medication or something like that. And what happens is he starts recounting how God has been there and how God has been faithful and how ultimately he's going to win. And at the end of the psalm, he's on the cloud nine. What enables you to fight? What enables you to keep going when we fight the spiritual battles? It's the knowledge that someday it's all over and we win. And where does that knowledge come from? It comes from the knowledge of the good news, the gospel. We can endure the rough times. Why? Because we have the hope of eternal salvation. We can trudge through the, the rock-infested valley because we win. It's tough, it's hard, but we're going to win. We're not going to lose. We can endure the heat of the battle. Why? Because God's going to enable us to win. We're not going to slip. And that's an interesting thing. Think of the terms slip in the, in the Psalms. How many times David said, He has set my feet on high places. I will not slip. Like the deer that bounds around the rocks, I will not slip. And I've watched some of those. I mean, I went out to... Um, Glacier National Park and you see those bighorn sheep jumping around the cliffs and I get a headache looking at them. If I just stand there, I'd fall off and that'd be the end of me. And these things have hooves. They don't have, you know, mountain hiking shoes. And they're bouncing around, you know, and I was like, good night. You know, one of them are going to... They don't fall. And that's what David is saying. You've made my feet like hind's feet and they will not slip. Why isn't that... Why is it that we will not slip? Because ultimately we win. We don't lose. This is not a losing battle. It's a tough battle for us. It's hard. It it gets grimy at times. It's tiring. But someday, folks, five minutes in heaven, you're going to just say, you know, it was worth it all. And ten minutes, you're not going to even remember all the grief that you went through in life. Maybe a minute. You're not going to remember all the grief you've been through in life. Then we have the shield of faith. What's that? That's something we take up. It's not that we stand with it, we take it up. And when do we take it up? Well, we take it up when we need it. And if you look at a Roman soldier's shield, there were basically two, two of them. One of them, there was a small round shield. We see that in those little gladiatorial fights you know, on TV. That little round shield that they're fending off the, the, the blows of the enemy. Um, and those are usually metal, rounded metal, something like that. And then they had another one where they had like a big wooden plank. It was like a big... Um, piece of wood and they would put um, leather over it and they would soak this leather in, leather in like a, an oil or a resin or something sticky 
And what you're able to do is you're able to stand behind it. You see it in some of those old movies where you got those big shields and they all stand behind the shields. All right? That's what we're looking at here is these big shields where you stand behind it. So when the arrows and the, and the Bible calls them fiery darts come at us, they embed themselves in the, in the shield and they extinguish themselves. They're put out because the oil doesn't burn that they have. It, it doesn't burn. It protects it. It's something you stand behind. That's the shield here. The, the Theron refers to this large shield that you stand behind. All right. This, these are our shields in the scripture. And what is that? Well, what does Satan try to throw at you? The fiery darts of the wicked one. What does he do? How does Satan attack you? What are, the, some, what are some of the fiery darts? Doubt. Doubt. The shield of faith quenches the doubts of the evil one. Because what does Satan do? Oh, yeah, you're a Christian. You know, Schaefer, you, th- you, you think you're a Christian. You know, I know what you did. In fact, I told God what happened when that lady pulled out in front of you and you uh, gave her that sign with your finger. You know, I know what you did. Um, huh? Yeah, peace. And I know what you said. And even though you didn't say it out loud, I know it was going through your head. I know. And I let God know on that. And what's he do? Fire darts. Doubts. Oh yeah, you say you're a Christian. Christians don't act like that. And then what happens to some people? Boy, I might not be a Christian. Boy. And, and he throws these doubts, and it's constant, folks. It doesn't let up. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, listen, you never get over your doubts, do you? I've been a Christian for 35, no, I've been longer than that now, 42 years. I'm losing track. And you know what? I still have them. They still come my way. I like to get rid of them. I like not to have any doubts at all, you know. But we have them. And what protects us from the doubts that Satan throws at us? What protects us from those things that he comes? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in the Word of God. Faith in what God has said. And sometimes that's the only thing that will get you through those dark times. Faith faith is believing what God said. Believe God or you don't. It's believing what God said. God said, you know, for instance, you know, if you've come to Christ as a Christian, you believe God says your sins forgiven from you, they're removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And yet, what do most Christians struggle with on a daily basis? Can God really forgive me of that sin? Well, what does the Bible say? Yeah. Well, what is the Bible? Well, that's your flesh. You're going to battle that. And Paul talks about that. But what has God said about your sin? It's been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. So, what do you need to meditate on when Satan comes along and says, yeah, you know, that was really a bad one. And I don't, I don't, I'm not sure God can forgive you that one. What do you need to do? Consider the source and go back to the Word of God because what does the Word of God say? And it says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And I, I, you know, stop and think about it. There are many Christians today who are absolutely paralyzed in their Christian life because they feel that God's not forgiven them of something they've done. God can't forgive me for that. Well, what does the Bible say? He has. In fact, here's the other thing. When you came to know the Lord initially, what did God know you would do? He knew all of them, right? 
I'd like God to have said, okay, you're coming to me. I'm, I'll, you know, I, here's, here's a list, some of us. Here's a list of all the sins you're going to commit. And I still forgive you. We do, don't we? Constantly. We constantly fight with that. And again, there are Christians that are paralyzed over some event, some trauma, some thing that happened in their past. They're paralyzed by that. You don't need to be paralyzed. Go back to faith. What did God say? I believe it. I think one of the amazing He knows them all. And they've all been forgiven. They're all covered. No. Right. No, we are forgiven for everything. Now, we confess our sins in a, in a, in a relational sense, but not in a forensic sense. The other thing here is that Satan likes to say, or likes to think, you know, well, maybe God's going to let you down. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're, maybe He's going to fail you on this. That's a good one, right? A lot of times we think, well, you know, God's not let anybody down in the history of Christianity, but I'm number one. I'm the first one He's going to let down. He's going to, He's going to fail me. God's not going to fail us. That's probably how Job felt, right? I mean, here's a guy that was righteous, and look what happened to him. He kept on believing God. He said, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. That's a tough one. Then there's the helmet of salvation. What's that? Well, the Romans' helmet protected the head, right? And so when the blows rained down, the helmet would reflect or deflect the blows. (coughs) The helmet was usually made of metal or metal plates. Um, it protected the head against the arrows and also the Ramphaya, the, the Roman long sword, the big broad sword that they would weld. Um, they would try to hit you on the head and if you weren't protected, they could even split your skull open or split your head in two. And that would be the end of you, of course. And what is it that protects us? Well, our helmet, the helmet of salvation, is the helmet that we are saved. We're born again. And that's an irreversible thing. So when Satan starts raining these blows down on us, what can we we be assured of? We're we're God's child. We're not going to fall. We're not going to lose that salvation. That's the other thing. One of the things that Satan likes to do is try to get us to doubt our salvation that either we had it or we lost it. You can't lose it. You can't lose what God has given you. And he uses the broad sort of discouragement to, 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 to discourage us, to make us feel like we're not winning. And, you know, sometimes you look around us and you think, you know, we're not winning this thing. Ultimately, will we win? Sure. So you've got to look at that. You've got to have the faith that ultimately we will win. But right now, it's tough. And one of the things that we need as believers is the assurance of our salvation. We're going to have a whole series on assurance but the knowledge that we are born again, the knowledge that we are truly God's child and that He is not going to let us down. He's not going to fail us. He's not going to forget about us. We're not going to be the first person in human history that God has failed. That's not going to be us. He will never let any of His children down. Then finally, we have the sword of the Spirit. Again, what is that? 
the short dagger. And what was the short dagger used for? It was used in close spiritual battle to, or close physical combat for the Romans to get up under the armor and, and thrust in and, and hit a vital organ and defeat the enemy, kill the enemy. And the word here, the rhema, you know, the, the sword of spirit, which is the rhema of God, rhema is the saying, the specific saying, the specific verses. And I think that's important here because when you look at Christ who defeated Satan, what could Christ have told Satan to do? When Satan defeated, or when Satan tempted Christ, what could Christ have told Satan to do? Yeah, buzz off. And, and by the way, Satan would have had to leave, right? How did Christ battle Satan? With the quotations from Deuteronomy. He quoted scripture. Satan said, uh, here's the temptation. Christ said, now wait a minute. The Word of God says this. He dealt directly with the temptation by quoting the Word of God in context, understanding what the Word of God meant. And I like the way Dr. Vance Havner put it. He said, if, Satan, if, if Christ could defeat Satan with three verses from Deuteronomy, what should you do with the whole Bible? So what is the, what is the lesson for us? The lesson is this. When we are faced with a temptation, whatever that may be, how do you deal with it? You go back to the Word of God and you quote Scripture. So if you're, if you have, uh, if you're plagued by you know, the, the sin of lust, what do you do? Well, memorize verses on lust and it's not fun anymore. If you're, if you're uh, tempted by the sin of gossip, what do you do? Well, memorize verses on that. And when that temptation comes along to gossip, go back to the Word of God. And when that temptation comes along to covet or to or to doubt, or to whatever it is. If you have a short temper, memorize verses dealing with self-control. And when those temptations come along, you can bring the Word of God to bear on those temptations. That's what Christ did. That's how He fought this. Christ did not fight it by telling Satan to leave. He did not put up a shield. He did not pray a hedge. He quoted Scripture. And that's what we should do. So if you have trouble with any particular sin, and we all have those, don't we? Find the verses that deal with that sin. Find the verses that deal with that issue. Put them in your brain. Memorize them. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to start seeing spiritual victory when you use the Word of God. And that's what it's talked about here. You don't use the dagger to just wail. Use the dagger to poke it at a specific spot. It's a precision instrument. The Word of God is a precision instrument. And it's best, um, it has its best effect when it's used in context correctly for the real reason. Now, what brings all of this armor together? What brings it all together for us? Prayer, right? We need to be people of prayer. We need to ask God for guidance. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to ask God for strength. We need to ask God for the assurance of our salvation. We need to ask God to help us be holy people so that we can have a breastplate of righteousness. We need to ask God to give us insight into the Scripture so that when those, those temptations come our way, we have the Word of God there to help us fight that. And without prayer, nothing that's the power that brings it all together, folks. That's what energizes us. That's what helps us to fight this battle. And a lot of times, you know, people might put on the armor, but if they don't pray... Nothing happens. Nothing happens. 
So in the end, how do you how do you battle Satan? How do you fight Satan? You fight Satan using God's means, not your own means. You stand with the spiritual armor on. You stand in prayer. You ask God to give you insight, understanding. And when Satan fires those darts of doubt at you, what do you do? You say, I'm going to either believe the doubt or I'm going to believe God. And as you, as you grow in your spiritual life, you become more and more dependent on God and you believe Him more. Your faith is strengthened. You're able to withstand the fiery darts. Folks, God is not leaving us defenseless. He's given us defenses. He's given us a means to fight the spiritual battle and we need to depend on Him to do that. Can't only anticipate it all, but you know that. Yeah. It's going to get darker, right? Mm hmm. Zane's activities are going to increase in the latter times. We know that. Um, we know he's there. And, and you're right. We need to. Most Christians spend their entire lives tiptoeing through the tulips. And uh, it's not tip. We've, we've been able to get away with that. But there's coming a time when we can't. And, and folks, the battle is real. It's really out there. And, but ultimately, folks, we're going to win. You don't need to worry about losing the battle. We will win. Satan is a defeated foe. So, all right. Well, let's uh, close in prayer so the other class can come in before they throw us out. Father, thanks so much for this day and thank you for giving us defenses. We, we are not left defenseless against a rapacious enemy that would destroy us if he could. But you've given us protection, Father. You're there to protect us. You've given us the means to protect us and I pray that we would be men and women of the Word, men and women of prayer, we would be serious about spiritual things. We would understand that there is a real battle out there. We would fight it your way, not our way. And that would depend on your strength and not ours. And we thank you for this day you've granted to us in Christ's name. Amen.